We're going to read together from God's Word. Let's all stand as we read. You'll find the text printed in your notes, but also on the screen. We stand as an expression of respect, uh, of honor, saying that all of us come and lay our lives down before His Word. And so let's read together from God's Word in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. But now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in other languages, how will I benefit you unless I speak to you with the revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Even inanimate things that produce sounds, whether flute or harp, if they don't make a distinction in the notes, how will what is played on the flute or harp be recognized? In fact, if the trumpet makes an unclear sound, who will prepare for battle? In the same way, unless you use your tongue for intelligible speech, how will what is spoken be known? For you will be speaking into the air. So also you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, seek to excel in building up the church. This is God's Word. You may be seated. So what's supposed to happen? That's the question that we've wrestled with as we have looked at God's Word here to a, a church that was wrestling and struggling with all kinds of, uh, of internal conflicts. As we come to this section that we've been studying, we see uh, the Apostle Paul teaching them about what is supposed to happen when they all get together. When, when a church comes together, what is supposed to happen? Well, that's what we see Paul directing us to, and I think it's what God has been speaking to our church for many, many weeks now. Last week, if you were here, you remember that uh, we looked at the first part of chapter 14, and, and we saw, saw the call from Paul to his church and then from the Lord to our church to pursue love to pursue love, and, to, and then out of that love to seek to build up the church, to use our words to edify or to strengthen one another, using God's words as the foundation for that strength. That sort of sets the layout for what we've been talking about, and it sets the agenda for us as we come together. We are to pursue love and seek to build one another up. Now, the passage that we just read turns to a specific concern that, that Paul was dealing with in this church in ancient Corinth. Now, these are real people just like us with uh, real questions and real problems, and we've kind of touched on this particular issue a couple of times, but for a few minutes this morning, I, I just want us to, to enter into the conflict that they were facing and to think through what it was that was causing such a stir for them. If you've got your Bibles open, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. If you don't, get one open, pull it up on your phone, do what you've got to do, because we're going to need to look at some of the context around this particular passage as we, we still ask that question, what's supposed to happen? And we look at what was happening there and the guidance that God gave through the Apostle Paul to his church then. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, you'll see in many of your translations that it, it sounds different than what we read together. Uh, verse, uh, verse 6, 
But now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in other languages. Now, uh, somebody uh, probably has a different translation than I. Uh, if you have a different translation, what does yours say? Tongues, right? Uh, most of your translations likely have that. So right here, we've got to ask some questions as to what's going on. Now, why is it that some translations say languages and others say tongues? Well, it's a pretty important question. Uh, the translation that I'm reading out of, what we're, what we're seeing is these group of folks who were shaping this translation. Uh, they were looking back to Acts chapter 2. And if you'll remember, this was when the, the church of God just began. Jesus had been resurrected. He had ascended into heaven. He had told his followers to, to stay together and to pray. And that he was going to give them a gift. And then that special gift came. The Holy Spirit poured out on them in, in, in spectacular ways. And if you remember, the text of Acts chapter 2 says that there was something like tongues of fire that appeared over their heads. And they were able to go out into the city and people from all over were gathered in that city because of a great, a great celebration, a big party that was happening. And the, the disciples began to, to talk and they were sharing and speaking and preaching about who Jesus was and people were able to hear in their own languages. Even though they didn't understand the language that the disciples were speaking, they were able to hear in their own way. And so, some people, as they read 1 Corinthians 14, what they do is they say, well, that's what might have been happening in the church in Corinth. What was happening was the people of Corinth were, were eager, they were zealous to have that same kind of experience. They had heard that story just like we had about what happened in the beginning when God began his church. And so they were eager and, and desiring to, to speak in these special tongues and to have the Holy Spirit uh, pour out this power on them so that they could use other languages to talk about Jesus. And the church was uh, having a fight over uh, what to do because everybody wanted it. Their, their gathering was, uh, was probably more like a football game with lots of people talking and shouting and hollering and, and they weren't even sure what was going on. And the Apostle Paul says, if this is right, he says, no, look, you, you got to be clear. It's important that everyone understands what's being said. So some people will say that's the way to, to translate this, to say it's, it's a languages that's being referred to here, just like in Acts chapter 2. But not everybody. Can we go ahead and admit that? Not everybody uh, agrees with that particular uh, approach. The reason why most of your translations say tongues is because that is, well, the Greek word that's being pointed to there. It's the word tongues. And so folks who will, will translate it that way and, and understand the passage in this way, they're referring not back to Acts chapter 2, but to what Paul will describe in Romans chapter 8, verse 26, as a kind of, of prayer. Uh, um, to, to be so caught up in prayer, to not be able to understand or to articulate what to say. And Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us in urgings and groanings that words can't explain. It's, some people will say the tongue that's being referred to here is a kind of uh, an expression of praise that, that comes out of this ecstatic experience of the Holy Spirit showing up and helping them to pray in a particular kind of a way. Some folks will say that's what's happening, and that's why we should, we should translate this, uh, that, uh, that if you come together speaking in other tongues. Now, 
There's a third group. This is probably where most of you went if you've been around this conversation. There's a third group of folks that will say, hey, this is related to what happens in a particular a tradition that we know of as Pentecostalism, or maybe you've heard the description of, of a charismatic expression of worship. Well, that, and that's what a lot of people will think this is talking about. And a lot of arguments and debates happen on this particular passage with respect to how do we deal with what's happening in those kinds of churches today. Well, the, the honest answer here is that, that even when you look at the, the best scholars who come out of a Pentecostal tradition, one of them is a guy named Gordon Fee, outstanding New Testament scholar who grew up and still is a part of a Pentecostal church. But when Gordon Fee writes about this passage, you know what he concludes? He says, we can, we can look back and say this might have been what it was in the first century. Maybe it was languages, maybe it was tongues. But there's no way that we can connect the dots from what's happening in Corinth to what's happening in these Pentecostal churches today. We're going to have to decide that question some other way. And so I'm going to kind of leave that off for us. That's a, a pretty specific topic. We're not going to dive into that but we do want to look back at the text and say, so what is it? How are we supposed to understand this? So here's where you have to have your Bible, because I don't want you to take my word for it. Is this tongues like languages, or is it tongues like some sort of, of expression of prayer or praise to God? Well, at least in the context of, of 1 Corinthians 14, I think we have some pretty clear evidence that what's happening here is something like that second thing, an expression of prayer or praise to God, that the assembly, the gathered people, weren't really sure what was being said. And here's why. Look at verse 2. For the person, if you've got your Bibles, you're going to have to turn there because we don't have it in print. For the person who speaks in another language, that's the translation I'm using, some of you will say in another tongue, is not speaking to men, but to God, since no one understands him. All right, that's our first little clue. Look at verses 14 through 16. Now, Paul is talking about his own experience. For if I pray in another language, again, that's my translation, yours probably says tongue. For if I pray in another tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding, he's talking about his head, is unfruitful. What then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will also pray with my understanding. Otherwise, if you praise with the Spirit, how will the uninformed person say, Amen, at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you are saying? Did you catch what Paul just argued there? He says, look, if, if we're all together in a worship service, and and I, Paul, uh, express praise to God in, in these utterances, this tongue, and I'm not even sure what all it means, and you're not sure what all it means. How is it that the assembly of us all together are able to say, so be it, that's right, because we don't know what was said. 
And, and what's supposed to happen in the context of, of Christians coming together to, to worship God, what's supposed to happen is we hear things with our ears and it activates our minds and our minds are formed and shaped such that when we recognize that what we're hearing matches with what God has already revealed in Scripture, we say, yes, that's right. And our hearts are then stirred to expressions of praise or thanksgiving because we're seeing evidence in one another that God is real and active and he is still drawing people to himself. That's the kind of picture that Paul paints there in verses 14 through 16. But he's not done. Look at verse 28. If you flip, uh, flip on down to that. But if there is no interpreter, that is someone who can understand and articulate that language, then, <clears throat> I'm sorry, I read the wrong verse. That's verse 20, uh, 28. Verse 26. What then is the conclusion, brothers? Whenever you come together, each one has a psalm, a teaching, a revelation, another language, or an interpretation. All things must be done for edification. The priority that comes when people of God gather together, and we call that church, the priority always goes to the building up of the broader community of faith. This is why Paul says in his instructions on this particular subject, in this church, only two people ought to speak this way, and, and maybe three, but if they do, one of them needs to interpret what's being said. Now, that word interpret is an important one because generally we assume that that means that, say, uh, say one of you over here were to speak in one of these ecstatic languages, then we would all wait for someone else to stand up and see if they were able to, to interpret that. Generally, that's the picture that people have in their mind about what would happen in these corporate worship services. But that's probably not the case. You see, that same word for interpret is used in other contexts in a, in a very similar kind of a way. If you look at the writings of a guy named Josephus, he was a, a historian who lived about the same time as the Apostle Paul. He'll use that word to describe what happened when he was trying to explain to a Roman how glorious and beautiful the, uh, the, the palace of Herod was before it was destroyed by, well, the Romans. And so he says, I'm looking for a way to interpret to you how beautiful this was. And what he means by that is he's saying, I'm trying to figure out a way to, to express or articulate adequately just how beautiful this palace was. With that in mind, and we think about what was happening in this church, the, the likely what was going on was Paul was saying, look, if, if you have an experience of God, if his spirit stirs in you so much so that you feel overwhelmed, then by all means, talk about it. Share it. But share it when you're able to talk about it in ways that people can understand. That way, on the one hand, as people listen, they can say, praise God. They can join in that experience of God's power and his presence. And on the other hand, we'll get to this in another week, they can also evaluate. 
They can help to listen to see, is what you articulated, does it match with what God has already revealed about himself? Now, I know that this is a pretty, uh, pretty technical subject in some respects. It's not one that we, that we normally talk about a lot. And it really raises the question for us, if, if this is what's happening there, we, we don't sort of see this kind of experience uh, now in, in our typical experience across the church in the West. And again, I'm going to leave off the, the Pentecostal tradition as something, as another subject altogether. If this isn't exactly what's happening, do we have anything to learn from this particular church? Is God speaking to us through this particular circumstance? I think the answer is yes. And here's why. There's a man named J.P. Moreland. He's a philosopher and scholar. I spoke about him uh, last Sunday night, if you were here for the seminar. He, he said this. I'm just going to read you what he said. Corporate worship, that's what we're doing right now. Corporate worship is not effective because it provokes feelings of ecstasy, but rather because it forms our thinking to a more correct view and relationship with God. Did you hear that? What determines whether or not we're wasting our time right now, right? That's what he's getting at. What determines whether or not this all has any meaning or significance is not if we were emotionally stirred up. That may or may not be the case. You may or may not have that experience when we come together as a family of faith. But what does determine whether or not we've wasted our time, whether or not this was significant and meaningful, was if you were encountering a living being, the, the divine one who created this whole universe and who has sent his son to call you into relationship with him, and your encounter here causes you to think more correctly, accurately, clearly about him and his character and his ways so that you might relate to him more closely and personally and affectionately. What determines whether or not this is a waste of time is not first how we feel about what happens, but rather how we think about our God. That's what's supposed to be formed in our coming together. And that's why the Apostle Paul is so, so intent with these people to say, look, you've got to make sure people can understand what's happening. They, they have to be able to understand it because if they can't, then they risk missing out on an encounter with the real and living God. That encounter which will determine whether they live or die, whether they spend eternity apart from Him or with Him, whether they find hope and love and joy or continue to wander around lost and broken and confused. Everything rests on this. 
that when we come together, we're able to clearly hear and see the character of God and reshape our thinking and relationship with him in accordance to what he's revealed about himself. And so how do we do that? What is it that we do actively? I mean, it's one thing to say uh, philosophically, yes, I get it. I want to understand who God is and, and how to relate to him. But what is our responsibility then as a people of faith, as people who are trying to follow Jesus? Well, Paul gave a specific point of instruction that I think God continues to speak to his church today. Not just our church, but every church. Look at verse 12. So also you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, seek to excel in building up the church. What are we to do? We are to direct our desires such that everyone would be able to understand Jesus. Why do I say that? Well, these words that Paul uses here, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, seek to excel in building up. It's a a strong word that he, he talks about when he says we're to seek to excel in building each other up. It's the same word that in another context would have a very negative connotation because it can allude to a jealousy and envy that destroys But here he uses that same word in a positive context. He says to let your desires to be inflamed in such a way that you then direct them towards building up the body of Christ. You know this, right? Our desires can be directed. I don't know about you, but I, from time to time, have a strong desire to eat at Poncho's. Those of you who know ponchos understand why I would have such a strong desire. I mean, all you can eat Mexican food. I mean, all you can do is you sit there at the table and you raise the flag. Someone comes and says, yes, you can have five more tamales. I mean, that is a good place to eat, right? Unfortunately, here in Waco, we don't have one. And so my desire for ponchos from time to time gets rather intense, and I long to, uh, to get there. I want to be there. I have a burning desire to go to Poncho's. And my poor wife sometimes gives in. And we drive up to Arlington and we go eat there. Of course, then after that, there's another kind of burning desire that follows. Um, (laughs) But that's another subject altogether. The point is, the kind of seeking that Paul's describing here, the kind of urgency is that same kind of urgency. I've got to do this. Now, all of us have desires. We have things that we want and we like, and that is a good gift of God. It is a good gift of God that we would have longings. But our desires are supposed to be subject to our thinking, our evaluating. We are not supposed to be subject to our desires. Do you know what the difference between a bomb and a car engine is, it is energy under control. A bomb explodes 
and we'll send you to kingdom come. But an engine takes that same energy, that same drive, and focuses it and controls it. And that same energy can send you across this country safely. God has given us desires as a good gift, but they are not supposed to control us. We are to direct our desires towards the aim in which he has given, which is to build up people who would more and more know who Jesus is and learn to follow him. And in so doing, we would become more like God himself. You know what God desires, don't you? You know he has desires, right? God is not some sort of a being off in the distance that, that doesn't feel. He feels deeply and passionately, though not in the same way that we do. This is 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand it, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Do you know what God desires? He desires the broken and rebellious people like us and like this community all around us would not perish in our sin and rebellion, but rather would come to know his mercy and his love in his son, Jesus Christ. And you know what God did with that desire? He directed it. He directed it such that he would devote his own son, Jesus, even to the point of the cross, dying in your place for your sins, he longed to see you experience his mercy so much that he would focus that desire and devote his son to die in your place. But he wasn't done. God's desire to, to see all people experience his salvation and come to repentance would continue to be expressed as he sends his spirit to embody people whom he saved, such that when they come together, his very presence would be with them, and his promise would be that he would send them across their city and state and nation and world, so that there would be no one of any language, of any tribe, who has not had the experience of hearing and knowing that their creator God loves them. He loves them in this way, that he would send his one and only son, Jesus. Whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And he now sends us, his people, as his agents out across this city and across this state and across this nation and across this world such that nowhere he would be without an ambassador who would say, I know this God and I'm learning how to rightly relate to him.
and you can know him too. Let's pray. Eternal one. We're like, we're like little children coming to you. We don't understand. We're prone to distractions. We get scared and we get confused and we get cross with each other and with you. And so we need you to be patient with us. We, we know what you've said, that it's your patience that leads to repentance. And so we just ask, Father, would you, would you do that work in our own hearts and spirits? We've heard, we've heard your word today. We've sung it. We've spoken it. So would you now use your word to form our minds so that our hearts might be directed to you in worship and trust and repentance and in love. Accomplish that work because we can't. We don't have that power. But we trust that you do. So come and meet us here. Don't let this be a, a waste of time. But would you change our minds and our hearts as we submit to you? We pray this in the good and the beautiful and the powerful name of Jesus, our Savior.